Six Ps podcast today. We go over the first three chapters, look at some of the characters, some of the themes, and go over the important quotations. That's the Six Ps podcast coming up right now. Yes, hello and welcome back to Six Beach Podcast for another edition, episode H, if you can believe that. Um, this is getting released during the holidays, so hopefully you're all having a nice little break, doing a little bit of homework, but also finding time to catch up on sleep, exercise, diet, all those um, things that sometimes we forget when we are, I guess, swamped with assessment tasks and sacks and so forth. If you'd like to get in touch, whether you've been listening since the start or you've just tuned in, please send me an email at 6pspodcast, that's 6pspodcast at gmail.com and I'll be happy to answer any questions or concerns or any kind of feedback you have about the podcast, about the comparative texts, about the oral presentation, anything at all. Today we are looking at Year of Wonders. Last week, I kept referring to it as the Year of Wonders. That is not the title of the text. It is Year of Wonders. Um, And this week, we're just going to start by going over the first three chapters. So what I'm going to do is for this podcast is just give you a brief overview of the chapter and then go through a couple of key quotations. And we'll start with chapter one, which is called Apple Picking Time. Apple Picking Time uh, is the first chapter and it sort of comes up um, in 1666 and this text of course as I mentioned previously is a circular novel so we start in 1666 and the following chapter goes back to 1665. It is a first person narrative and it's from the perspective of Anna Frith. She is our narrator and we are introduced to her in this chapter. She's a domestic servant and she expresses concern for her master who is Michael Montpellion. He has been rector in the village for three years. Now, the village is called Eam. Uh, I don't think it's actually ever referred to in the text, but it is called Eam, E-Y-A-M. Please be very careful. It does sound very similar to Salem, which is the setting of the crucible. So, Anna is the care of the household, including Montpellier's horse, and that now falls upon Anna. Anna recalls the loneliness, or the kindness, I should say, that Eleanor had showed her. So she tries to repay Eleanor's kindness through caring for Michael Montpellion. She recalls her married life with children and a husband, whose name is Sam, and Elizabeth Bradford arrives. Um, She is a very wealthy individual, and she uh, arrives to speak to Michael Montpellion. He refuses to call uh, upon Elizabeth's mother, who is at risk of dying a prolonged and difficult labour. Anna tries to console Montpellion by drawing his attention to a comforting Bible verse, but he angrily resists her effort, and the chapter ends there. Just a quick note with this. This section is about 15 pages long. Obviously, it's a circular novel, so at the end of the text, we do come back to this section, and it happens on page 270. 
I advise that when you get to page 270, that at that stage, go back and read this chapter again because it's going to like make a lot more sense to you. Just so you know, it took me probably two or three reads the first time to understand what really was going on in this opening chapter. We have a lot of questions um, that go unanswered until very later on in the novel. But I guess to go through some of the really important quotes, I guess to start with, yeah, it's really reflective, this opening part. And Anna really focuses on the setting, the agricultural or agrarian society that is Ian. And she talks about the thick, sweet scents of rotting apple and wet wood. And she talks about that this year the haystooks are fewer and the woodpile scant and neither matters much to me. And we get in that first page on page three this real idea that the town is decaying rapidly. She says there are so few of us to do the picking, so few to do anything. We're all so tired. And it's a really good, I guess, there's a lot of imagery in this opening part really to just describe the not just, I guess, the isolation that some of these characters feel, but the decay that's been happening across the town, not just morally, um, but also physically with the town. Montpellion is described very early on. She, Anna this is, says, he sits still and silent, his hand is on the Bible, but he never opens it. And this is symbolic of the fact that Michael Montpellion does lose his faith. And this chapter, or this story, I should say, for me, there's two stories within, in, in this novel. There's the rapidly increasing strength of Anna Frith and the rapidly decaying faith of Michael Montpellion, and these entwine together towards the very end of the text. She then goes on to discuss her marriage with Sam, which was, quote, three good years, and the fact that Sam's death was the first of many. And the idea um, on page number nine, she says, quote, that was just another in that long procession of dead, this idea that the plague was a pandemic. She then goes on to discuss the town and describe the town. She says, quote, The land is grassed over. For hundreds of years, the people of this village pushed nature back from its precincts. It has taken less than a year to begin to reclaim its place. And she talks about the town um, being quite a tough place to live. Um, she says, quote, We live all aslant here, on page number 11, and goes on to say that, quote, we are always tilting forwards tall uphill or bracing backwards on our heels to slow a swift descent. It's a really harsh lifestyle here in this town. And also the fact that religion is a real focal point of the town. She says, quote, our village is a thin thread of dwellings and spooling east and west of the church, unquote. And that's on page 11. When Elizabeth Bradford comes in, um, I guess the idea of class comes up a lot. The idea that um, Elizabeth Bradford returns to town, and again, we read about this a little bit later on, but she says that, um, or she mentions the fact that Elizabeth Bradford's pride was so overweening or so arrogant. Um, she talks about also the fact that she was not accustomed to sharing a doorway with servants. This is Elizabeth Bradford. And Anna, I guess, summarises the change or the shift in class by saying, well, times had changed in the Bradford's absence, and the sooner she accustomed herself to the inconveniences of the new era, the better. The idea that the plague or the crisis had caused the um, social class to really, or social hierarchy to really change, it's turned on its head. This is so similar to the Crucible, I should say, too. And the quote, which is one of my absolute favourites, it comes on page 15, and it talks about Anna. And her change, and again, we follow this change throughout the text. Anna says, It was as if there were two of me, walking down those stairs. One of them was a timid girl who had worked for the Bradfords in a state of dread, 
fearing their hard looks and harsh words. The other was Anna Frith, a woman who had faced more terrors than many warriors. Elizabeth Bradford was a coward. She was the daughter of cowards. And as I entered the parlour and faced her thunderous countenance, I knew I had nothing more to fear from her. That suggests for me significantly here that Anna has grown significantly throughout this text. Just one more thing before we move on to chapter 2, and that is the two Bible verses uh, on page 19. So Anna tries to um, convince Michael that he should look to the Bible for guidance, for faith. And she says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the, from the pit. And Michael refutes that by saying, Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. When you get to page 270, in fact, go to page 270 now and just write in, look at Montpellion's Bible quote on page 19, because that'll make a lot more sense to you. It's time for our first break. We're going to come back and listen to chapter 2, or go through chapter 2. Episode H this week, it coincides with holidays, so we've got a holiday-themed music today. We'll be back right after this. to the spring of 1665, so we've gone back a bit in time, about a year and a half in time. Anna has taken in this lodger, who is George Vickers. He's a tailor who has travelled and lived in London. He gets on very well with her children, Jamie and Tom, and he expresses a romantic interest in Anna and makes her a green dress. Shortly after they kiss, Anna notices that George is feverish. He quickly becomes sick and dies 24 hours later. Michael Montpellion attends his deathbed. George Vickers is the cause of this crisis. He has the plague. It's interesting to note that very early on in this chapter, she says, Anna says, In the following spring, when George Vickers came banging on my door looking for lodging, I thought God had sent him. Later, there were those who would say it had been the devil. Bit of foreshadowing here. It links in really nicely with the crucible and Puritan lifestyle. It's either good or bad, Good or evil, black or white. 
When it comes to George Vickers, he sort of brings the world to Anna. She says, quote, George Vickers brought laughter back into the house on page 24. And she says later on, like most in this village, I had no occasion to travel farther than the market town seven miles distant. The idea that the town is very insular, the idea that George really opens Anna's eyes to the whole world. And she says, quote, when he entered our cottage, he brought the wide world with him. And that really excites Anna. She mentions um, that George Vickers tells her some really bawdy stories, especially after she finds out, or he finds out, sorry, that she's not very religious. And I like this quote. It says, I was not by any means a Puritan bent. He shared with me some tales of the bawdiness and carousing he had witnessed in the city. And for me, this really suggests that Anna is really quite free and quite open to everything. The idea of their relationship being quite scandalous comes up as well on page 30 when Anna says, but you must know that to be man and woman under one roof is a perilous matter. I fear that we approach too near to terms of friendship. And that goes to show for me, again, this very Christian society and the role of women um, and the role of men even too. She gets given this green dress and it really excites her. She says, My curiosity to have the dress upon my body overbore my sense of what, what was or was not fit to do. The idea of conformity. And it goes away from that when she puts on the dress. And she said, quote, I felt an urge to move with it, to dance again like a girl. The idea of happiness and freedom. And we see this is taken away from her with the crisis. They're then introduced to Eleanor Montpellion. And um, there's some really fantastic quotes for her. Between page 34 and 35, um, the one I really like, though, is the idea about Mrs. Montpellion did not scruple to toil with her hands, especially she loved to work in her garden, and it was not uncommon to see her faces streaked with dirt as a charwoman's from carelessly pushing back wisps of hair that loosened as she dug and weeded. We find out she has a frail body, and it's paired with a sinewy mind, a really sharp mind. She's very knowledgeable, and she passes this knowledge on to Anna. Quote, Mrs. Montpellier never let a minute pass without trying to better me. I hungered to learn. She commenced to shovel knowledge my way as vigorously as she spaded the cowpats into her beloved flower beds. A nice simile there on page 36 to describe that. Again on page 37, we get this idea that, that knowledge in school wasn't for girls, even for boys. And it says, quote, there were no schools even for boys in villages such as ours. And Eleanor, like George, opens the world up to Anna by teaching her to read. It's also mentioned here a little bit about the fact that Eleanor and Michael don't have a child and how there's a bit of scrutiny on Eleanor because of her failure to conceive a child. Um, There's a great quote again on page 38 where she says, And we all, the whole parish, benefited from her barrenness as she mothered the children who weren't mothered enough in their own crowded crofts, took interest in promising youths, who lacked preferment, counselled the troubled, visited the sick, making herself indispensable in any number of ways to all kinds and classes of people. And this, for me, is a great quote to describe Avenal Montpellion. We also are introduced to Mem Gowdy, who is, quote, a cunning woman, to whom all looked for remedies and poultices and help with confinements. That's again on page 38. And we are also introduced to her niece, who is Anise. 
Both Mim and Anissa looked on with, quote, some envy by the other women in the town. Um, and there's a quote on page 40 that says, Afra being um, and the stepmom, and Afra's superstitious mutterings found many willing ears among the villagers, and sometimes I worried for Anissa on account of it. The fact that rumours and innuendo spreads very fast, just like in the Crucible. The chapter closes with George Vickers' death and the plague. Um, and again, this idea of the smell of rotten apples. And to show the shift in this, Anna says, quote, The sickly sweet smell of apples was gone, replaced by stench of weak old fish. And George Vickers sadly dies, and Michael Montpellion attends him. Chapter 3, The Thunder of His Voice, referring to Michael Montpellier. And it starts with Anna scrubbing her house clean. There are customers who come to claim garments that they had commissioned from George. Although Anna was told to turn all his possessions, she feels that she must hand over their goods. She also visits Anise Gowdy and she discusses her relationship with George Vickers. In fact, they both have a relationship with George Vickers. And it closes with Anna serving at the Bradford's table as they entertain a large party, including Michael and Eleanor Montpellion, and talk of the plague that has overtaken London. The chapter, as I said, opens, and Anna recalls George Vickers's quote. He said, to burn everything, and that may be good advice, but she refuses to when people come. She says on page 48... For all the years of my childhood, when the Puritans held sway here, we wore, for our outer garments only, what we call the sad colours. Black for preference, or the dark brown called dying leaf. Since the return of the king, brighter hues had crept back to most wardrobes, but long habits still constrain the choices of most of us. And the, a lot of the dresses that George makes are quite vibrant with colours. Anna... Um, throws her dress that she got from George into the fire and burns it, unlike the other people in the village. She then goes to the Gowdy's cottage to see Anise Gowdy, and there's some fantastic quotes in this chapter regarding the role of women in society, and Anise and Mem try to shift that. They go against the grain.
on page 54. Anish says, Why would I marry? I'm not made to be any man's chattel. I have my work which I love. I have my home. It is not much, I grant, yet sufficient for my shelter. But more than these, I have something very few women can claim, my freedom. I will not lightly surrender it. And besides, she said, shooting me a sideways glance from under her long lashes. Sometimes a woman needs a draught of nettle beer to wake her up, and sometimes she needs a dish of valerian tea to calm her down. We find out that Anise and George had a very physical relationship. And um, Anise is very graphic in how she describes that too, which is quite interesting. She says, quote, Of course I did. He was too young and handsome to have to slake his fires with his fist. When talking about her relationship with George Vickers, how it was quite physical, which would have, again, gone against conformity. Anna mentions this idea of conformity. She says on page 55, quote, Dark and light, dark and light, dark and light. That was how I was taught to view the world. The Puritans who had ministered to us here had held all the, that all actions and thoughts could be only one of two natures, godly and right, or satanic and evil. A really great quotation to link to the Crucible as well, which is obviously a Puritan society. The last quote from page 55 um, is great. It's from Anna. She says, quote, I saw them, them being the women of the village. I saw them that afternoon through Anissa's eyes. Shackled to their menfolk as surely as a playhouse to his shares. And this is Anna reassessing her view of the role of women in society. Anna then goes to um, Bradford Hall, where she talks about the colonel, who she especially feared. It's a quote on page 57. And she describes Miss Bradford, who is, quote, a proud and sour young woman. The Bradfords represent the upper class here. It's interesting to note Colonel Bradford, the way he deals with Elizabeth, I mean, sorry, Eleanor Montpellion. I do get confused with these names. Um, apologies. When she talks about Eleanor, um, she says in terms of the Colonel, that Colonel Bradford appreciated her substantial connections on page 58. The idea that maybe the Colonel didn't necessarily appreciate the fact that she was a woman, but definitely appreciated her connections and, and the people she, she knows. And... The at the Bradford's table, they talk about the plague, the idea that it's spreading in London, and Michael Montpellion is or argues that people should stay. Colonel Bradford would rather flee and leave, but Michael Montpellion suggests that they should stay.
That's all we have time for today on the Six Ps podcast. Next week, the podcast will go over the Hobbit homework, which is on chapters four through fourteen of Until Then. Don't forget, proper prime preparation prevents poor performance. Are we finished? Done.